Welcome to the Cap City Outfitters podcast. This is episode 49. You got Chris and Brian. Uh, this time around, we're going to talk some more about shooting pistols at night uh, with weapon-mounted lights. Um, this time, not in a snowstorm. Yes. Uh, but with a lot more focus on target identification, discrimination, and just getting the gun quickly into the fight um, while doing all of those things. Uh, as well, too, the, the the push on the particular training night that we're going to reference um, the, the gentleman who set it up had a kind of a programming methodology that worked really well as far as being accurate. Um, guys, the, the targets we're talking about here today are, are fairly significant size constraint targets. Uh, we started off shooting at two inch dots, three inch dots, three inch dot, two or three inch dots, um, at fairly close distance for repetitions and then pushing out and, and, moving that distance back a little bit and adding some time constraints and stressors and things of that nature. Um, but the targets that we're talking about, if you guys have been in the shop and you've seen the action targets that we carry, um, one of those targets has a what looks like a bowling pin type silhouette on it. Um, if you're a law enforcement shooter, you're probably familiar with that type of qualification target. It's a miniaturized Q style target or FBI style target that, and then on the paper surrounding it, are, are various shapes, triangles, squares, uh, circles, and then various colors, yellow, red, uh, blue, and then numbers within each of those. Um, none of those devices are more than about four inches um, on the total on, in any dimension. So the squares are about four by four, the circles probably about a four inch di diameter, and the uh, triangles about four inches to a side, maybe a little more than that, not much. Um, so, you know, fairly, fairly relatively small targets under significant time constraints. Um, those don't sound like small targets, but when you think about an A zone, um, on a USPSA or, a, or a whatever it's called, or a down, whatever down zero. zero on USPA and IDPA targets are generally eight inch or more, um, dimensionally targets. So in the head on, in, on a silhouette on an IPSC or USPSA silhouette is, is five by five. So th these are relatively small targets under real-world conditions, time constraint-wise, darkness-wise, lights-wise, distance-wise. Um, and, and so, you know, if you're training, if you're shooting steel all the time, it better be little bitty steel. Um, you know, if not, you know, get on some paper and make yourself honest. Um, and, and again, our partner who kind of pushed this, I think that was one of his big drives was to absolutely get your hits before anything else. Do it with alacrity. But get your hits. Yeah, if you didn't make your hit or make your hit in time uh, with five air squats, so a um, number of people did 10 air squats because they were overtime and missed a shot. Yeah, yeah, and a, and a number of people did that a number of times. Um, so, you know, the most of the time constraints that we went with on, you know, that, that, that Mac J chose on these drills, um, I think were reasonable time constraints. I won't say easy, but they were reasonable time constraints. I thought I had lots of time. Yeah, um, you know, but again, wintertime, working from legit concealment, working from heavier coats because it was cold out and stuff like that, and then employing a light in that sequence of events too. Um, you know, I'll throw out the advantages of having, you know, you've got big hands, Mac J's got big hands. If you're running a light on a gun um, and you can reach all the controls easily, there are some significant speed advantages just simply to being endowed with big hands. Um, I, unfortunately, come more from the carny end of the gene pool and have a hard time reaching those switches, which is why I cheat and use things like DGs, which I think helped a lot to keep yeah. me under a lot of those times is the fact that I'm not, there's no attempt to turn the light on. It's on when I draw the gun. So uh, those of you unfamiliar, uh, Surefire, and I think Streamlight makes an analog to this too. 
If you're running an X300 uh, type weapon light on your handgun, Surefire makes a switch called a DG switch. Um, actually, I think named after Dev Group. Um, I think, wasn't it the team's guys that wanted? Maybe. Yeah, I, I want to say that that's the case. That I could be totally full of shit on that. But um, it's a switch that goes from the back of the light. It still lets you have the toggles on either side and run the light as normal, but it puts a pressure switch underneath the trigger guard on the front of the grip of the firearm. Um, and activated if by your middle finger. Yeah, activated by your grip of the gun, your middle finger. Um, and, and if you've got small hands, it's a godsend. Um, it doesn't necessarily apply to every type of usage. I don't know that I would necessarily recommend it for someone who's in a tactical law enforcement environment. Um, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't recommend it for somebody um, if, if the handgun's your primary weapon, you know, in, in any kind of an offensive environment or tactical environment, I don't know that I'd recommend it simply because of the possibility of a white light ND just by having a grip on the gun. Uh, for me as a cake eating civilian, I can draw the gun surreptitiously and slowly and, and on the sly. Um, if, if, if time and environment allows and not trigger that light and not let anybody know I'm there. But if I need the light and the gun right now, it gives me both right now great adjunct to the gun for a civilian um you know so something to kick around so also something we carry in the store so if you want to stop by and play with one you know please do yeah um getting back to that we had one of our training group members um, running a streamlight tlr7 which has little bitty switches mounted on the side of the light i mean actually have to push the switches from the side he had some issues making the part-times yeah, well, I had issues, I think, accessing the light. Um, I will say that in a couple different instances, uh, um, <laughs> he used the force. Um, there, was, there was just enough ambient light, um, probably not for PID on a target, whether or not that individual had a weapon or not. But in this case, in the training environment, um, this individual is, is uh, he does not hesitate in going to the gun or the trigger. Um, he's a lifelong hunter and basically doesn't dawdle. Um, and, and so there are a couple different times he drew the gun and, and in relatively, well, in almost complete darkness was able to get enough onto the target fast enough, quick enough, but not under that was running the bigger silhouette, not running the smaller shapes Yeah, when he did that. And had you know, full night sights on his pistol. Absolutely. Um, you know, so yeah, so, you know, but the, the light definitely fought him, um, and, and the, bear in mind, guys, this is not trashing on a brand. Um, we sell Streamlight products. We're, we're believers. They make a really good product. It just so happens that the switchology on this particular light is just, it's not easy to access. Um, it Very gives easy you, to conceal. Yes, it gives you 500 lumens and a light that doesn't extend past the end of the gun um, that is robust. Uh, it's just the switching's a little bit difficult to get to. Um, and I would say Stefan probably has normal-sized hands, not, you know, not gigando beaters like you. Um, and so I, there are a couple different times he was struggling to get that light on, which means he'd be struggling to get PID on a target as well. Um, so, you know, just something to kick around, not good, bad, or indifferent. You know, we talk about, you know, guns and stuff like that as, you know, different brands and different systems. It's not bad. It just is. You need to learn how to make it work for you. And there was definitely a little bit of a struggle going on there. Um, and in fairness, and to come to the defense of Streamlight, they are coming out with a TLR7 with a different switching modality. They're going to have um, switches a lot more like the Surefire, where you've got a pressure switch that you push from the rear, um, or push down slightly from the rear um, on their TLR7-A series. Unfortunately, they don't exist in the wild yet, um, so that will be something that we will be chasing down when they pop up. 
because the switching is way more ergonomic, uh, way easier to use in general. So, um, but you know, just one of those things where you know, live and learn, figure out how your stuff works and make it work for you. He wants to be able to conceal the gun that he carries with that light on it comfortably, and that works for him. It's just a training issue of making that tool work right. Yeah. Uh, I'll add that having a Glock 19 uh, with the Surefire X300 Ultra and Weedham and Gotham holster is yep. still yep. the easiest way to carry you know, a fighting-sized gun. Uh, appendix, very well concealed, very comfortably. Yep. Um, you can do it pretty much all year round, um, provided you wear a slightly looser t-shirt in the summertime. Um, very easy to conceal and to run in the wintertime. Yeah, and, and I would also say, too, if you're worried about carrying a big gun over the summer, um, you know, Magnum P.I. carried a 1911. He just wore Hawaiian shirts. Um, you know, harness the Aloha. It's out there. You know, check out, you know, check out Audi Gear and some places like that that sell Andrew's stuff. Check out thewiedemann.com. Um, printed, um, especially dramatically printed shirts or dramatically patterned shirts tend to break up printing. They tend to break up the outline of the gun when it does poke through. And like Brian said, you know, if, if you're, a, you know, a size medium, buy a size large, not a size medium minus. Um, medium doesn't help conceal things. Give your uh, sister t-shirts back. That's right. It may show off your abs, um, but, you know, you still look silly, so stop it. Um, so, guys, uh, I, I, do we want to run through, like, some of the drills and stuff like that? Or, I mean, because uh, there were some good takeaways, I think. Yeah, one, uh, real quick, we do carry the Buidem and Gotham holsters here at Cap City Outfitters. Absolutely. Uh, we have them for both the X300 Ultra and the Surefire, or I'm sorry, the Streamlight um, Taylor one HL. Um, yeah, as far as drills go, a lot of it, a lot of the, the night in the beginning was just basically drawing one yeah. for time. So yeah. up drill type stuff. Yeah, we were building off of a, a, a no time limit draw stroke on a relatively small target at like three yards. And the point of it was to get some reps in and graining the draw stroke because um, we, you know, we, we kind of stepped off the, the handgun train for a while. Um, so again, I think Mac J was pushing us to get that draw stroke down, find the front sight or the dot or whatever the case well, and may turn be the light on. and, and get the light on and, and maybe, you know, kind of grease, grease the groove with a few of those strokes. Um, and, and so we did that and then we stepped back to, I think we went from three to seven yards. Yeah. Yeah. On the same small dot. Um, and, and then put some time constraints into the conversation and stuff like that, which again, were generous, but realistic for carrying concealed, trying to activate a light, et cetera, and working in the dark. Um, and, and so we pushed through a number of repetitions in, in that regard to, again, I, I call it grease in the groove. I don't know what the right terminology is, creating muscle memory, creating a neural pathway, whatever it is, but getting that stroke just, in and making reps. sure you're finding everything, just getting reps in repetitions. Um, you know, there, the magic is there's no magic. So we were getting, putting the reps and doing the work to get there for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think drawing one on a two, two or three inch circle. At seven yards, we had a three-second part-time, and we we did that a number of times. Yeah. And then went to three rounds in five seconds on that same target. Yeah. Um, one of those kind of drills where the value of the red dot on the handgun really shows itself. Absolutely. And and I and I didn't find that out until afterwards because I chose to run that irons um, because I hadn't I really haven't trained any significant number of reps um, with the red dot with shooting iron sights through the dot as if it were disabled or turned off or the battery was dead or something like that. So I chose to do all of those first reps out to seven yards with iron sights. Um, and then when I flicked the dot on, it was, it was back to that instantaneously. The heavens opened up, the lights shined down, the angels sang and, oh, and, and it's like, wow. 
Um, man, this is a whole lot easier when you just put the little red dotty thing on the target and, and don't screw it up with your trigger press. Um, having said that, I was able to make all the times no problem with irons, um, you know, and, and go from there. And boy, there's a whole other conversation about sight type choices when shooting through a dot and stuff like that. Um, I know a number of guys who just absolutely preach that um, they have to run black irons with a dot because anything else is too distracting. Um, guys, these are only things you'll find out by going out and doing it. You will never find out how easy it is to acquire black sights, black on black sights in the dark with a weapon light through a dot optic with the optic turned off if you don't go do it. Um, and some of these things are legitimately personal choices. Um, you know, we, we've got a, a group of guys here locally that are very, very well trained and shoot and they do some amazing work on guns. And the boss over there, um, he is a hardcore black on black guy. For your backup irons, he is a hardcore irons in front of the optic thing um, because it's less clutter uh, for him and it works. Um, it's also one of those setups that are really pushed by guys like David Bowie at, at Bowie Customs or Bowie Tactical mm -hmm. um, down in Southern Ohio, who's a guy who has a boatload of history with these types of toys. Um, and, and so for them, that's, that's the way Eric's got to do it. That's the way that works for him. For me, I have the orange dot up front. And I'm looking through the optic, and it really didn't bother me. It really didn't slow me down. Um, and I think Eric would tell you, too, that you know the, his preference, we're talking hundreds of a second, probably not enough to make a real difference, but enough to make a difference that he knows there's a difference. So you wouldn't know that unless you got, went out with your tools and ran them to see what works for you. And that was kind of the point of this night, I think, too. So um, figured out some things, learned that irons do work through it. Um, for me, it doesn't bother me, but might be different the other way too. Yeah, I think inside of probably five yards for a defensive encounter, having that orange dot on the front side post is to your advantage. Yeah, yeah. As, as long as long as it's not a distraction to you in training, and I would go back to if it's a distraction to you in training, maybe tape it off or do something like that so you're not seeing it. Or just uh, train more. Or, or, or train more. Either way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think visually though, there are some things that that tweak people. If you know what you like, you know what you like. Um, and that's cool. No big deal. Run with what you like, run with what you know, but you probably won't figure that out unless you're out doing it, which is back to your answer. Train more. So you, you'll figure it yeah. out. So yeah. Uh, add to that training point. Uh, I think it very quickly became apparent who's been doing dry fire training and who hasn't when we were out, we were yeah. out shooting on the range doing live fire stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I have been doing more dry fire here recently. Um, and, and I'm getting into another topic for down the road, but I'm getting into doing more one-handed left-handed stuff too. Um, and, and so I, I definitely thought like, I felt like my trigger control was really good. The couple shots that I dropped, and I think I only dropped a couple shots almost the entire freaking night. Um, the couple shots that I dropped, I knew instantaneously as I was dropping the shot where that shot was going and knew that it was often not even that far off from the dry fire work that I've been doing. Um, guys, dry fire is cheap. Um, matter of fact, it's almost free. It's just your time. Um, and you don't have to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reps. A few good reps a few times a week makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. I mean, I see it already and, and I'm a fairly experienced shooter. So it's not something that, oh, that's for noobs. Um, some of the best shooters in the world get lots and lots and lots of clicks in. So. Yeah. I'd say your grandmaster level USPSA shooters probably get five to six dry fire trigger presses for every live round they send down range and they send a metric boatload of rounds down range yeah yep yes indeed did i mention it's free 
um, it doesn't cost anything to put the ammo in the magazine in another room and go into a different room and pick out a light switch cover or the light switch itself and practice lining up the sights and pulling the trigger at it. It's just your time. So. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> uh, and then after the, at that point, your live fire range work simply becomes a validation of your dry fire training. Yes. Um, and the whole not having to think about what you're doing really comes to the forefront. Absolutely. <clears throat> and, and guys, you know, the dry fire thing is, is not, I don't do necessarily a lot of dry manipulation of the gun other than side alignment and trigger press. Um, but I, I'll, I'll share a mentality that will help you make hits. Um, talking to a gentleman who retired from Columbus Police a number of years ago, uh, but was with CPD and with SWAT for an extended period of time and consistently shot 295s and 300s on qualification courses. And CPD's old qual course was 60 rounds. And a lot of guys thought of it as, you know, certain number of strings of fire within a 60-round course. And he always explained to me that he thought of it as 60 individual single-shot courses of fire. So even if you're shooting three or four rounds at a time, shooting each round as its own independent event, meaning two sight pictures, one trigger press, and all that fun stuff, follow through, um, and all that crazy stuff, you can get all that from dry fire. And if you treat each shot like its own event, rather than rushing to get to the next shot, you'll find yourself making up for fewer misses. Um, yeah, do you know who else does that? Pat Mack. Absolutely, absolutely. So, old dudes know shit. Yeah. I, and I would even opine that, you know, side alignment, trigger press, follow through, and those types of things are indeed basic dude stuff. They are. Yeah. Sorry, Pat. Yeah. I had to do that at least once, so. Oh, but no, you know, learning trigger reset, getting away from, you know, flinching effectively on the trigger, slapping the trigger. Yeah. Um, you can you can really practice that dry fire. Uh, I'm going to throw in running a double action single action gun or a dedicated yep. double action gun for dry fire. Is that pistol is worth its weight in gold? Yeah. Um, even if you never fire a, a live round through it, um, having a pistol like that that you can dry fire with makes yeah. a world of difference when you go back to a striker fire gun like a or Glock. a DA revolver or something like that too. Even even if it's just a cheap snubby to dry fire with. Um, Man, this podcast is almost like not exactly history repeating itself, but it sure does rhyme a lot kind of thing. Um, no new ideas here, huh, guys? So um, so what else did we do um, on those targets? We got back to uh, seven yards, and we did um, on, the beep, on the beep ID, like we were called, number was called out, stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah so was, um, there's six different numbers in the target. Our facilitator would make the beep on the timer, yell out a number. You had to find that number and engage it three times. Sure. Within, Sounds good. I think, five seconds. Um, and we did some team teamwork. Yep. Um, so three of those targets, um, two guys up at a time, to yell out a number. You had to engage that number on all three targets between the two of you twice. And pretty much as soon as that third shot he sent was sent, uh, he was calling out another number. So yeah. just a lot of doing things relatively quickly. Um, communicating, kinda, too. Yeah, communicating. Because the, the drill lasted. Um, we pushed through. There was It was basically about a 50-round drill. We pushed through three mags pretty much yeah. every time we ran it. Uh, you know, you came to the line, kitted up to run to run through it because the whole point of it was shoot, move, communicate. This was the, this was the shoot and communicate part and then moving around cover if you were being honest about the drill. Um, and, and the, you know, the communicate part wasn't just, you know, 
hey, loading, you know, or whatever. It was also who was getting to that center target first. There was a lot of communication going on that was nonverbal. Um, for example, uh, when I ran it, my cohort in crime, whoever's light got to that center target first to get two hits on it, just let that person take the two hits. If you were making your visual transition from target to target, there was already a light on it, let, let it go, let that person do it. I think we just shot the center target four times. And, that, and that's, we didn't, we did, I mean, maybe as the drill devolved, as you got into some reloads and stuff like that, that might have happened. Um, but I think, I think realistically that we stayed on that, you know, that center target, whoever got the light on it first, the other person just let them take it. Um, and there were a couple, I think there was at least one time where there was a reload after the first shot and somebody had to come back and transition back to that target, but that was part of the game. And at that yeah. point, you know, then there was another number called out. You just addressed that number and then went to your target to finish it. So either way, but yeah. it was, there was communication involved and a little more stressor, a little more thinking and, and working around cover to engage those targets. So, um, definitely got your, got you into the, into the, the fight a little bit more with that drill. Yep. Um, trying to do reloads in the dark under stress and not let your partner down um, and not, support your partner. Yeah. Along yeah. with, you know, finding reloads, you know, that were concealed under jackets and coats and whatnot. Um, it wasn't super cold that night. So we were yeah. really hunkered yeah. down, but everybody was running at least a, like a light jacket or a, like an outdoor sweater or something. Yeah. And there's a reality check that, you know, we're all, uh, cake eating civilians. So most of us carry the gun. And, and, and a reload at most, um, I don't know of anybody, I don't know of anybody within our group that necessarily carries two spare mags all the time if consistently. If odd chance I have to go to Easton. Exactly. Yeah. Other than that. Yeah. But then I'm wearing a backpack with a freaking cruiser weapon, you know, whatever. Um, there, there, so everybody kind of had that third mag jammed in a pocket somewhere. Um, having said that based on the times to reload and stuff like that, you, I, you really couldn't tell the cadence of fire. Um, was such that I felt like everybody did a really good job managing that aspect of the fight too. So, which would be yeah. basically that non-standard reload. So, yep. Then we finished off the evening with a kind of a scenario-driven thing. Um, six different IDPA backers set up uh -huh. um, within about a well, like a 25 by 40 space, 25 yards by 40 yards. Uh, probably um, probably 25 yards by about. I think mm, 25 yards, probably 25. pretty much square, okay. 25 by 20, 75 feet by 75 feet. Um, and a couple of the targets downrange, a couple of the targets in your face, a couple of the targets in the middle, cross range, etc. cetera. Um, obscured with barrels and yep. shadows and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and actually the layout on that was freaking ingenious um, because you could not see, see you couldn't see half of anything from any one position. Um, I'm not sure where Mac J came up with that little bit of evil, but you so literally, you, yeah, something. you had to find cover, utilize cover, scan, and then you had to move. So I'll let Brian explain the drill, um, and then that'll make that comment I'll probably make a little yeah, more sense. So each of those targets were numbered one through six. Um, you were kind of randomly given three numbers, which were bad guys, and then the idea was go find them and terminate them. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, you couldn't see all of them from any one position. And I would say that you probably couldn't see more than a couple of them from any one position. The layout for that was, was pretty slick and you had to work your way through it. It also puts you in a position where you had the option. If you had enough light on your gun, you might be able to identify a target at significant distance and engage that threat. Um, if you didn't, then you had to move to a closer point of cover, exposing yourself, possibly exposing yourself to other bad guys, and then also running the risk of flagging a good guy or IDing a good guy. Um, and I'm going to tell you that I think some good guys probably got guns pointed at them. Um, 
and I, and at that, that stage of the game because of the drill, that might be part of the game. I'm not sure exactly how where I'm at with that. Um, but it was really well laid out, and it made you think. It made you move. It should have made you use cover appropriately. Um, a couple folks got a little bit sucked into it, and were, were hugging barrels instead of keeping some distance off the cover and stuff like that. Um, but I think everybody learned, you know, maybe a little bit about where their weaknesses are, where their goats are that they need to work. So. Yeah, um, definitely, you know, really put the put the need for a weapon-mounted light to the forefront. Yeah. Um, as opposed to trying to to scan and then you know keep a a handheld light, you know, focus on the target and then run your pistol with one hand. Yeah. And then trying to make those shots at distance, um, having the weapon-mounted light, you know, really makes yeah makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, all in all, it was a really, really well-programmed training night with a lot of good content. Um, and, and I think everybody picked up a little something-something or got some good reps in or, or found something to work on. In a lot of cases, I think a number of us found things to work on. Um, you know, the couple shots that I dropped were were at significant distance. I dropped a couple of the headshots just below the neck um, at probably a full 25 yards, which... I'm I'm theoretically okay with, but it doesn't. But it's something now that I want to work on. I want to keep yeah. pushing the dry fire, seeing what a difference it made, and I wonder where those shots would have been three months ago. So, anyhow, so yeah. Um, you want to talk about your squib? Yeah. Um, hey guys, if you are running um, ammo, um, if you're running ammo that's been wet or not properly stored or this that or the other um i had some ammo and it's not it's not brand specific this was actually first man first run manufactured ammo um from a reputable manufacturer but two weeks ago um, before this training night we were out in the snow and it snowed two to three inches while we were training um it, during that time frame apparently the bag that i had my ammo in i'll often store ammo counted out in freezer bags and vacuum seal bags so that i can grab a 250 round pack and run to the range um, that got a whole bunch of snow in it. I didn't realize it as we packed up in the dark. Um, as I was stuffing mags today, or on that on our training night, as I was stuffing mags, I noticed that that ammo was dampish. Um, uh, me being the idiot and cheapskate that I am, went ahead and loaded up the mags with it, kind of like, oh, it'll be a training opportunity. I can practice my tap racks. Uh, I had a squib going into the drill, the last drill that we did, the culmination that was shoot, move, identify, etc. in a scenario-based environment. And literally fired, I think, two rounds, one round or two rounds. It was almost immediately in the drill and had a squib and, um, and, and caught it. Um, I, I will tell you that in all honesty, I probably caught it because I'm not that fast of a shooter. Um, but I've also done this a few times too. Um, something to be aware of. Uh, a great reason to have a, a metal cleaning rod in your kit at the range, um, you know, so that you can knock that squib out and keep right on going. But yeah, but I did catch it. Um, it was a primer only load. I'm not sure what happened with the powder other than it got wet. Um, but you know, be aware of that be on the trigger. Um, if you are shooting so fast in a defensive training environment that you, you can't control the next shot from a perspective of not being able to recognize something's different, slow down, slow down. Um, I don't know what my splits look like doing that kind of stuff. That was, thank God, a little bit further target. So I had to line the sights up and press the trigger. And, and I knew it instantaneously. If it had been one of the close-up shots, I'm not sure that I could have put the brakes on quick enough. Um, but in this case, I did. So again, just something to be aware of. If you pull the trigger on the gun and something doesn't quite feel right, um, is it worth you know, possibly damaging a weapon or worse, damaging you 
or worse, damaging somebody nearby you, um, you know, hit the brakes, pump the brakes for just a second and see what's going on. Um, your gut will talk to you if you've got the experience to recognize what it's saying. So listen to it. Yeah. Um, definitely, you know, as we get into, you know, weird weather here in Ohio, you know, one of the things we like are the MTM cases for keeping ammo in. Yep. Um, they're water, they're actually O-ring sealed. Um, keep them closed when you're not loading your mags. Yep. It helps keep snow and rain and stuff out of that case. Um, yeah, it makes a difference. And, and don't be an idiot like me. Um, you know, if you pull your ammo out, uh, you know, from a training opportunity, if I'm going out to do stuff where I know I'm going to be running the gun fairly hard and, and I, and I see that my ammo's wet and I know it's been wet for two weeks, don't be a dumbass. Um, I, I was a dumbass. I, I should have set that ammo aside for a, a slow fire day or for something different. I should have set that ammo aside for that day and just not use that ammo. It's not like I didn't have. 500 more freaking rounds with me somewhere else dry um you know so you know don't be like me um it's probably a good general rule to live by anyway so yeah cool well there you go all right <laughs> um, on that note you can find us on facebook and instagram we're at cap city outfitters uh find us on the web capcityoutfitters.com 4465 cemetery road capcityoutfitters.com <laughs> Hilliard, ohio uh, stop in and see us Shoot us an email, um, info at capcityoutfitters.com. Tell us what you think about the podcast. If you've got suggestions for topics or whatnot. Um, Chris is pointing at me with the skull of his Remember, enemy. Remember, as often as coffee. you can, as often as you can, drink from the skulls of your enemies. Even with a little bit of cream, it's still okay, Lon. Quit picking on me. See ya. <laughs>